For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yesterday afternoon at a courthouse in Washington, D.C., federal district judge Tanya Chutkin took the extraordinary step of placing a gag order on Donald Trump, limiting the First Amendment rights of the former president. The order came at the request of Jack Smith, the special counsel prosecuting Trump for his role trying to overturn the election on January 6, 2021. Smith said the order is necessary because Trump keeps attacking prosecutors, court officials, and even potential witnesses. This could influence the trial and taint potential jurors. But Smith is also concerned with the possibility Trump's rhetoric could inspire violence. If there's anyone who might be desensitized to the violence and vitriol in modern U.S. politics, it's Robert Pape. For 30 years, I've studied political violence in many different countries around the world, Bosnia, Iraq, Afghanistan, now in the last few years, the United States. Pape is a professor of political science and the director of the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats. I asked him if, even after all these years, he ever finds himself shocked by something a politician might say. Almost in every speech from Donald Trump, there are things that will give me pause. The former president has been fluent in outrageous language well before he ever entered politics. As a first-time candidate in 2016, and then president, Trump was constantly testing the limits of acceptable speech. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. Proud boys, stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what. Right you here, what. we're gonna walk down to the Capitol because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Trump's language by itself can be disturbing, but it's not only the talk that's raising alarms. We're seeing an actual spike in acts of political violence taking place in the U.S. A Reuters investigation from August found that attacks began to go up in 2016 after Trump first got into politics. Some of these incidents never received national media attention, like the Trump supporter in Ohio who killed his neighbor last year because he was a Democrat. Others were unavoidable. The mass shooter in Buffalo, who targeted black shoppers, leaving 10 dead in 2022. The home invasion and violent attack at Nancy Pelosi's house in San Francisco. And just this weekend, a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy was stabbed to death in suburban Chicago. The sheriff says that the killing was a hate crime, 
motivated by ongoing events in the Middle East. What's alarming is that, in recent weeks, Trump has cranked up the language to a new, even more incendiary level. Very simply, if you rob a store, you can fully expect to be shot as you are leaving that store. Shot! But this is a disgrace, and you ought to go after this attorney general because she's turning off... Then there was the time last month when Trump mused on Truth Social that maybe General Mark Milley, the retired Joint Chief of Staff, should be executed. To have him directly call for the death of our highest ranking military officer, um, that, that caught me. I, I, had to, I had to say that was definitely an extreme moment. Today on the show, Donald Trump is within striking distance of the presidency again. As he takes to the stump in the lead up to the 2024 election, will his violent rhetoric stir up more real world violence? I'm Mary C. Curtis, and for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, You'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. You had some research come out recently in June that took a close look at the support for political violence. What did you find? So we have been conducting quarterly surveys of support for political violence in the general U.S. population since June of 2021, so well over two years. And we ask a key question, which is, do you agree, disagree, that the use of force to restore Donald Trump to the presidency is justified? And this gets us a lens into how much radical and violent support there is for Donald Trump in the country at any point in time. And essentially what you saw is in the summer of 2021, 10% of the public agreed with that question. That's really quite an astounding number of people. But it started to fade. 
2022, and especially over the summer during the January 6th committee hearings, what we saw is that the trajectory, which had been declining through April of 2023, around the timing of the Trump indictments, reversed. And it reversed starkly, almost doubling from 4.5% to nearly 7%. Now, why is this uh, support uh, for violence increased? Would you tie it directly to the indictments? Uh, Any other things going on? Yeah. So when you do these quarterly surveys, we do them every three months. So what happened in that three-month period between April and the end of June? Number one, Tucker Carlson was fired on Fox News, and he was taken off uh, that big platform he had five days a week. He was a big megaphone. This was clearly incendiary rhetoric. So number one, we can say, not just like intuitively, but this data tells us that the firing of Tucker Carlson really uh, did not have an effect in lowering support for violence. What was the other major thing that happened during that uh, three-month window that would be a national phenomenon? It was multiple Trump indictments. Mm. We can't say dispositively this is the cause, but very likely what we are seeing is that the indictments of Donald Trump have radicalized the support, especially the violent support for Donald Trump. It's radicalizing both Republicans and Democrats in opposite directions. Well, you say that the radicalization is greater on one side or another because You say it's on the left as well. So how would you gauge that? Well, what we see in actual violent attacks in the last several years is more violent attacks that are occurring by right-wing perpetrators than left-wing perpetrators. There are some by left-wing, by the way, but it's mostly been on the right. And we also see that we have incendiary violent rhetoric by Donald Trump that is dovetailing with violent support for Donald Trump. But what has Joe Biden's rhetoric been like? It's not been incendiary. It's been the opposite. It's been extremely calming. A good example is the speech he gave when the Supreme Court reversed the decision on Roe. President Biden on that day He condemned the decision by the Supreme Court, but he added a big, huge paragraph condemning any political violence that would occur by the left. Well, that's very different than the incendiary rhetoric of Donald Trump, who is encouraging violence and then saying elections are so rigged they may not matter. (laughs) It doesn't mean that people on the left would never be prone to violence, but there's not been that toxic combination of the leaders' incendiary rhetoric supporting violence with the public's inclinations to support it as well. We haven't seen that as on the left, anything like the same degree We've seen this on the right. Mm -hmm. Does supporting political violence mean that a person is more likely to engage in political violence? I'm trying to ask, Bob, is there a link here? So we need to be careful not to draw a one-to-one link where we say support for political violence equals violent behavior. 
But that said, it's also important to know that support for political violence is one of the most important indicators that uh, scholars like me, analysts like me, use to uh, look at their trajectory of political violence in other countries around the world. And this is normal. In fact, it's a normal part of our military field manuals to understand the rise of insurgencies around the world, to look at public support for political violence. And why is that? It's because the more public support there is for political violence, the more that tends to normalize violence in a society. Also, the more support for political violence, the more those volatile actors can believe and perceive that their actions have a mandate that's supported by a community. A good example of this is in the behavior of the attacker on Paul Pelosi. He, of course, was trying to attack, if not assassinate, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Well, he nearly killed Paul Pelosi. He was then arrested. And for some reason, when he was arrested, the local police allowed him to do a radio interview. Why they allowed him to do that, I have no idea. Um, but they did. It was on a Friday night and he got on the radio and um, the very first words out of his mouth was he wanted to apologize to the country for not harming and killing, essentially, Nancy Pelosi. I want to apologize to everyone. I messed up. What I did was really bad. I'm so sorry I didn't get more of them. It's my own fault. No one else is to blame. I should have come better prepared. And that only could make sense is if he thought there was a willing public wanting that action to happen. You'll recall in the days after the Pelosi attack, there were many Republican uh, political leaders and media hosts who were doing jokes about this. Well, what that's doing is it's creating the perception of the support for political violence and violent actors, uh, and they're volatile. So I'm not saying this man was not a volatile actor to begin with, but they can be pushed over the edge. Last month at a campaign rally in San Francisco, Donald Trump took a cheap shot at Paul Pelosi. And we'll stand up to crazy Nancy Pelosi who ruined San Francisco. How's her husband doing, by the way? Anybody know? And she's against building a wall at our border, even though she has a wall around her house, which obviously didn't do a very good job. Trump has never shied away from low blows at political rivals. But the former president's rhetoric seems to amp up when his targets are people of color. He's lobbed personal attacks against Letitia James, New York State's black attorney general. And last month, during an interview with a right-wing podcaster, his comments about immigrants drew a comparison to Hitler. Nobody has ever seen anything like we're witnessing right now. It is a very sad thing for our country. Uh, it's poisoning the blood of our country. Uh, it's so bad. And people are coming in with disease. People are coming in with... with I asked Bob possible. how these comments might impact an already volatile political climate. What we find is that the supporters of violence for Trump, that is the radical support for Trump, is really tied to two uh, sets of beliefs. 
Beliefs number one are fear of the great replacement. The idea that the Democratic Party is deliberately replacing the white electorate with a non-white third world electorate. And that idea of the great replacement, Mary, has been a conspiracy theory on the right for many, many decades, clearly about race, without a doubt. Then there's another set of attitudes, Mary, and that has to do with the belief that our elections are rigged and corrupt. And what we discover is this has expanded to beyond belief about 2020 to belief about 2024. So you can see how these two sets of beliefs can dovetail, and we now have a fuller understanding of the mindset of the most radical supporters of Trump. We'll be right back. You've brought up 2024. Right now, you said Trump is winning. Will it get worse if he starts to lose and gets increasingly desperate? As violent as Trump's rhetoric has been in recent months, he has still not given a full-throated speech in front of a mobilized crowd to launch them into an assault in any way. That's what happened on January 6th. Donald Trump called a group of people, gave them weeks to assemble, and then for an hour and 10 minutes, he gave an incredibly incendiary speech that was directing them to go down the avenues directly into the Capitol. So this was an orchestration of violence that is beyond simply a mention in a speech. He is now by far the leading candidate for the uh, nomination by the Republican Party. And in fact, he's encroaching into uh, some of the independent support of uh, President Biden. That may not be the case as we go into 2024. We're going to have trials. These trials uh, may reveal lots of information that may work against Donald Trump's political prospects. But if Trump's political prospects decline, we have to be concerned that he will start to think strategically about the use of, of political violence as a strategic tool to enhance his power. Part of the effectiveness of that tool, as we saw on January 6th, is activating a greater number of supporters to actually take action and engage in this type of direct violence. I asked Bob how it might even be possible to combat this. The first thing that I think would be helpful is to see that the media narrative that has uh, developed here, um, and this is uh, a narrative that's that's widely in the New York Times, widely in the Washington Post, that it's mostly the militia groups who were the core reason for January 6th. I think that needs to be augmented and adjusted. Capitol Hill police were not overwhelmed by seven, eight hundred Proud Boys or Oath Keepers. Um, they were overwhelmed by thousands who were not. Prior to January 6th, there's lots of information that the FBI was tracking the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys in detail. 
the thing they weren't even imagining, like the true failure of imagination, was that middle class and even affluent Trump supporters would be physically violent to break into the Capitol. And I think that that's a, a missing part of uh, January 6th. And I think it's important because if we continue to think that January 6th was only about a handful of Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, and we've basically arrested them, and we've put them in prison, and those groups are out of business, well, then we're really missing, I think, what's really changed in the last few years, which is that support for violence has moved into the mainstream. And then we as a public, it really matters whether we as a public will abhor and condemn political violence when we see it, as opposed to just be silent. So much of this is tied to Trump. Now that everybody is all riled up, what happens when Trump inevitably goes away? Does the appetite for violence go away too? What are your predictions for 2024 and beyond? What our data and analysis shows is that 2024 is going to be a very, very volatile year. That is, there is a serious uh, reason to be concerned about rising political violence in 2024. And the issue will be around Donald Trump, his trials, his political prospects, the 2024 election. And very likely that will carry through even through January 2025. Beyond January 2025, though, when we see that this violent support for Trump is rooted in fears of a great replacement that are being aggravated, not just by Donald Trump, but by many political leaders who are now, I think you call them many political Trumps, but also many media figures as well. Well, those could well continue beyond the 2024 election and even become problems into the 2028. The next year will be very, very heavily uh, about Donald Trump. But as we go forward, we need to see that the real roots of this, Trump is maybe more, he's an aggravator, but he's also a symptom of these deeper issues that are corresponding with support for political violence. As the violent rhetoric has ramped up, we're also seeing a sort of muted reaction from the public. One political scientist calls it the banality of crazy. Are we just numb to this? Have the goalposts shifted? I wouldn't go that far. So yes, I think it's the case that the more support there is for political violence, the more political violence uh, becomes normalized. But I'd also go back to our surveys. You see, we're able to quantify that support for political violence in the body politic. It's significant, but it is a minority. It's a minority um, around 10 to 15%. Our surveys also show very strongly and repeatedly over time that 80% of the public, that's 80% of Democrats and 80% of Republicans abhor political violence. That's really good news coming out of our um out of our surveys, we've got to lean into that. Our political leaders need to lean into that. Our church leaders need to lean into that. Our media needs to lean into that. Once political violence gets in the mainstream, you can't just rely on this, uh, make it a law enforcement problem anymore. Law enforcement's terrific at responding after the fact, and sometimes they can head things off. But 
once the support for political violence gets in the mainstream, this is all of our problem and it is up to us and we can really do something about it, each and every one of us. I like to a little bit of good news at the end, kind of. Thank you, Bob, for coming on What Next? Thank you. Robert A. Pape is Professor of Political Science and the Director of the University of Chicago's Project on Security and Threats. And that's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We're led by Alicia Montgomery, with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist at Roll Call and host of its Equal Time podcast. Find me on Twitter. I'm at mcurtisnc3. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.